who will I say that I am and who will I say you are? And God, and God just answered, I am. It was a sufficient answer. And, and the point of that is that out of that statement, Moses' confidence eventually came. Because he is, I am. Or you could say it in a slightly different tone. You could say, because he is, I am. I can be. You, know, you can read it whatever way you like. But that's the, that's the series we're in. And so this message today is in context of, of that series. And I want to talk specifically today about corporate identity. That's all of us and how we are part of that. We are not individuals floating along the river by ourselves. We are part of a family. We're part of a corporate body of people. We're part of, this morning in the prayer meeting, we, we prayed for the body of Christ globally. You know, getting up right now are our family in Indonesia because they have early morning prayer on Sunday. Right now, at this moment, our brothers and sisters, our family who I've just been with are praying for us. That's awesome. We're part of something bigger than ourselves. So back to my question. Is there such thing as bad press? Well, it depends. If you're the one on the paper. Don't know if you saw this headline. I think that's true. You're not sure, are you? Where's he going with this? What's he doing? Pan fries egg on bald head. Mum shoots herself to give daughter a new heart. What about this one, just down in Kiki? Oh, these are jokes, by the way. You're looking like a little bit too serious. It's not true, like this didn't happen in Kiki. Fed up fatties, kill aerobics instructor. The Waipa Club. What about this one? Well, that's awkward. That's just awkward. No such thing as bad press. Depends who you are and depends which side you're on. What if we bring it a little bit closer to home? What if it was us in the paper? Today I want to speak to you uh, a a story from the Bible uh, with David, King David. And it's not his finest moment, I think. You'll probably guess where I'm going on this one. But imagine if the headline read, King takes friend's wife to bed. Is there no such thing as bad press now? That'd be like awkward, eh? Like, oh, let's bring it even closer home. What if that was me? What if it was like pastor takes friend's wife to bed? Like it wouldn't just be the social media that would blow up. It'd be a lot more than that. Sometimes the headlines in our life can mislead us, but is there such thing as bad press? I'm, I'm, I'm trying to build us to a place where we, we can look at the story where the hero turns villain. Because King David, next Sunday night, by the way, short advert, next Sunday night is going to be off the charts. It's our last night service for the year. I want to call you out to come together to celebrate because this is why. The theme that God gave me as I was praying for this a couple of weeks ago was victory. We're going to build the whole night around the theme of victory. We're going to sing it, we're going to dance it, and we're going to speak it. And I'm going to talk about uh, the life of King David and the levels of anointing God led him into. So it's going, to be, it's going to be a fun night, but it's not just about fun, it's about what we receive from God in order to step forward. But back to David's transgression, because he was a hero, 
And you might say that he turned into a villain. And, and so the thing is, I'm going to talk about David and Bathsheba, if you haven't worked it out already. But I also want to talk about Bathsheba's first husband. What was his name? Uriah. Because we see Uriah in the story. I want to look at him as well. And, and here's why. Because I want to make a contrast. There's tension in the story for me. And there's also tension in reality, so it's good to work out how to live in tension. But as I've been traveling and thinking and praying for you, praying for me, praying for others, I get this tension going on that in the story of David and Bathsheba, when I look at David, I get a reflection of the modern New Zealand church. And, and, and I want you to step back and consider that openly and honestly today. I want you to look in the mirror when we look at David and say, is there anything in his actions and mine? Now, I don't mean infidelity necessarily, but I mean, if it's there, you want to call it out pretty quick. But what I am talking about is our heart, our heart attitude. And I'm going to talk about the heart attitude because the heart attitude is represented either as a true son or truly an orphan. And, and this is a key phrase that God's asked me to speak at this morning corporately to the family as, I suppose you could say, the head of the house, as the dad would speak to those that have gathered in his lounge room. So I want to talk about are we a true son or truly an orphan? So let's, let's look at that. To explain what I mean by that, we've got to look at the contrast and the context from which I am looking at the situation. So I want to talk about the shock of contrast. When we prepare people, let me talk about missions for a minute. We've been really blessed as a family. We took our kids away in 2014, 2013, 2013, no, 2012. 2012, we went to Uganda because God asked us to take our children to visit sponsor kids over there that we had been investing in and praying in. And it was way out of the box for us. We were like happy, comfortable. Our kids were 12 and 14 maybe at the time, uh, 12 and 10, 12 and 10. And, and, and 12 and 14, oh, it doesn't matter. Um, and, and, and even our family were like, why are you doing that? Like, it's really dangerous. You're right next to the Congo. And like, it's physically dangerous. Like the reason you're sponsoring these orphans is because their parents got shot and you're going there. So we had this contest and the contrast of cultures going on. But one of the things we did is that we went to um, cross-cultural communication training and preparation for the mission field training uh, up at WEC, which is in um, Gordonton. And one of the things that they talked to us about is the shock that happens when you go into a completely different culture, either as a visitor or as a missionary. And so we learned to prepare ourselves, because you, you can't actually train for what's going to happen, but you can ready yourself. Does that make sense? So you ready yourself for the shock. And so they talk about what it's like to walk into an impoverished town where people live in mud huts and they eat rice two or three times a day that they've grown in their field. Because that's different than the way we live. And they talk to us about what is it like to walk into a market where everybody's yelling and what seems like they're fighting and, and, and competing for live chickens that get killed in front of you. What's it like to prepare yourself for that? Because that's quite different than going to pack and save, except on Saturdays. 
the shock of going in. And, and so which recently we took um, you know, Zelda and Ash into India. Now, we weren't going into the villages of India, but we were going into a completely different culture. The smells are different. The sights are different. The people are different. The way you interact is different. And so we had a conversation about preparing them for culture shock. So as contrast, why don't you look around and see this is where we do church on Sundays and we do church at home on Mondays. We do church at work on Tuesdays. But this is where we gather. We call this our lounge room. But in Indonesia, when Jamie and I were there, we visited this church in Timor. And they've since, I heard, poured a concrete floor. Problem is, it's only about one inch thick. How long do you think it's going to last? Scott, not long. Yeah, a couple of weeks. But this is their church. While we were there, we did a house meeting and, and we, we stayed in this, um, we didn't stay, we, we did a church meeting in their lounge room. Well, just as well we were in the lounge room because the only other room in their house was the toilet. They literally live in a two-room concrete bunker with their children. It's their home. And they were blessed to receive us and, and they fed us and cooked a wonderful meal that we enjoyed for lunch. But that's different than where I come from. So what's really important to understand with um, the shock of contrast is preparing yourself to come home. A friend of mine, when he first went to Uganda, he went before we did, and he said, you know, he had this horrid moment where he stood in his kitchen after coming home two weeks in Africa, and he stood at home and he opened up his fridge and he just wept. He sobbed because of what he had available to him in comparison to what he'd just experienced. And we call that reverse culture shock. So you come out of a, an impoverished situation or a challenging situation and you get home and you're like, oh, wow. Wow, why do I have so much when there are so many that have so little? I mean, you've got to prepare yourself for that because it can be more damaging to have that contrast. I took this photo at a pre-service prayer meeting in Indonesia in 2016, and it's one that I, I went looking for yesterday because I knew that I had it. And this is them praying long hours before church starts. And I was privileged to be with them. And there was a guitar playing. They would every now and then sing a song, which I couldn't sing because it was in Indonesian. Now weeping as they're praying for God's people and those that are lost in their city, desperate to see God's power move in their midst. And there's a big circle. I just took a photo of some of them. The contrast, you come back to New Zealand. Do you know in our church, half of the church only comes once a month to Sunday? Less than 10% come to a pre-service prayer meeting like that. And I'm usually the only one crying, but there's a reason for that. It's contrast for me. It's a tension for me. I'm not bringing this message as a, as a telling off. Um, don't, don't hear, please don't hear that. Because God spoke to me very, very clearly at the beginning of the me this message, and I'll share that at the end when the band joins me at the end of the message. But there's a contrast we've got to wrestle with, and, and the, the reality is it all boils down to our heart. See, because our actions are driven by the way we see the world. And the way we see the world is affected by what we believe in our heart. And that's where the orphan status is in here. And I'll talk about that. The shock of contrast. Let's look at the scriptures. 
Because we've got this guy, David. I'm not going to go into his story this week. But young David, you remember young David? The shepherd, the one that ran into the face of the giant that was defying God. The one who wrestled a bear, wrestled a lion and wrote songs about it. The guy that would spend time on his face just worshipping God. That's, that's young David. But the contrast then, when David got successful. Because when David had everything, that's when the wheels fell off. When he had his comfort, when he had his pleasures, when he had the whole nation of Israel to bow before him because God made it so, maybe successful David wasn't so good. And these are the contrasts we need to understand when we read Scripture. And I like to pull these out of Scripture because I want you to see them. Don't just glibly read the story and go, oh, that's nice. Connect the dots. King David, successful David, is the same one that was the young shepherd. But something shifted as life got easy for him. And may we see ourselves in that contrast. So let's go to our passage for today. 2 Samuel 11. Oh, this is, this is, I'm not going to do a lot of teaching out of the passage. I'm pointing to it because I'm using it as, as context for us to look at ourselves. This passage becomes our mirror. Let's compare King David to Uriah. So King David is, is literally at the pinnacle of his power. The highest place he could really be as far as God had said, you will be the king of Israel and I will establish my nation under you forever and through you the future king will come. The Messiah was promised through David. The pinnacle of his power. And yet we find in the story, he seeks after pleasure over God's presence. Because he knew as a result of the story, I'm about to show it to you, that he was cast out of God's presence. He writes in the Psalms, don't cast me out of your presence. Don't cast me away because of my heart. King David contrasts with Uriah the Hittite. There you go. Let's look at this. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, and let's compare these guys. Let's, let's, let's read the beginning of the story. In the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. Not one of my key points, but when kings normally go, David stayed. If you're not where you're supposed to be, you're going to get in trouble. You're going to get yourself in trouble. If you're not where you're supposed to be, you're going to get yourself in trouble. Late one afternoon after his midday rest, oh, stop, there's a really good point. We should have midday rests. It's in the Bible. Like King David is having a nap. Like, okay, got an amen for that. That's awesome. You're with me. David got out of bed after his midnight nap. He was walking on the roof of the palace. As he looked over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. He sent someone to find out who she was, and he was told she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Here we find the man I want to focus on, Uriah the Hittite. Well, by his name, we work out that he's actually not a Jew. He's a Gentile. The Hittites were one of the seven nations that God called Joshua to eradicate to cast them out of the promised land. And so they got completely, not completely destroyed, they got completely beaten up by Joshua and his army and they were forced out of the promised land God gave Israel and they now live in the north, the Hittites. They were known for their fear 
and their rabid destruction of anyone that got in their way. The Hittites were this mobile army that would just go like locusts, destroying whoever got in front of them. But Uriah is part of David's kingdom. So something's gone amiss there. He's been disconnected or he's, he's converted over to the winning team in that battle because he's now part of David's mighty men. So do you remember that David, when he was running away from Saul, he had 30 mighty men. Do you remember that? Some of you. David had 30 mighty men and they were more famous than all of his other army. He had thousands in his army, but 30 mighty men, three special fighters. Well, Uriah was part of the 30. Uriah had been serving David for 20 years. Lived in caves, he lived on the run, he'd fought battles. Some of these guys would stand back to back with David and fight an entire army in an afternoon. Uriah is one of those guys. And here we have Uriah off to war and David's checking out his wife. So what does David do? David takes her to bed. David sleeps with her and she falls pregnant. And she says to David, uh, awkward, but pregnant. His private sin is about to become public. Where's David's heart? Not yet repentant. He says, I'll make a plan. and I'm going to cover this up. He says to his, his, his man, he says, sent the word to Joab, who's the leader of the army, in verse 6, send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent him to David. What a privileged position it is to be sent to the king to give an update on the army. It wasn't Joab, the commander, it was Uriah. I mean, this guy is thinking on his way there. He's like, man, I'm up for promotion. This is awesome. I've got the favor of the king to be called into his courts to give him an update on the entire army. I get chosen. Awesome. Well, he goes in there and David says, well, how's it going? Good, good. Why don't you go home? And wash your feet. Now that's code. I need you to see this is code. It's not in the NLT, but it's code. Go home and wash your feet. What does he want him to do? He wants him to go home and sleep with his wife to cover up the private sin. And then it said he even sent gifts, a gift after Uriah, after he left. So he sent him this big present. Uriah, however, says this. When David heard Uriah, Uriah had not gone home, but slept at the entrance of the palace with the palace guard. David calls him and says in verse 10, what's the matter? Why didn't you go home last night after being away for so long? Surely you want to wash your feet. Uriah replied, the ark and the armies of Israel and Judah are living in tents. So all my friends are sleeping under canvas in the battlefield. And Joab and my master's men are out in open fields. How could I go home to wine and dine and sleep with my wife? I swear I would never do such a thing. For him, it's a matter of honor. So we see Uriah sleeps on the palace steps twice. Uriah chooses to put aside comfort over sacrifice. Look what he rejected. He rejected the pride that the king was trying to put on him by inviting him home for an update. He rejected the present God sent after him. It didn't affect his heart. And he rejected the pleasure the king put in front of him for fear it would dishonor the king and change his heart. See, what was most important to Uriah was the condition of his heart. So 
what was greater to Uriah was the bigger mission instead of the moment. The bigger mission instead of the moment. This is where we've got to find ourselves. We've got a contrast going on here. I want you to see the heart of Uriah and I want you to see the heart of the king as a contrast because the heart condition is what's most important in our identity. So let's look at the obvious problem. I mean, we'll call it out for what it is. Young David, let's compare David to himself. Young David ran towards the giant with covenant in his heart. Remember when he ran towards Goliath with a sling and five stones? You remember that story? What had just happened in the chapter before? Samuel the prophet had anointed him as the future king of Israel and said, you will be ruler and I am with you. And the spirit of God came upon David. Oh, that's gonna give a boy a bit of gusto. But he's got a promise in his heart and he runs into battle And I'll speak more about this next week in the evening, but he ran towards the battle with this anointing and this covenant promise in his heart. Contrast that with Uriah. Have you read this story? Have you you read the story in 2 Samuel? You know what happens? Like David writes a letter. Let's read it. Next morning, David wrote a letter to Joab, gave it to Uriah to deliver. The letter instructed Joab, station Uriah on the front lines where the battle is fiercest, then pull back so he'll be killed. So Uriah gets given his own death warrant and he willingly carries it to battle. Why? Covenant in his heart. As far as he was concerned, he was connected to a bigger mission than the moment. Now he didn't know about the hidden sin. He didn't even know about the contents of the letter. He just knew he was there to serve something bigger than his family, his his feelings, or even his pleasure. We've got this conflict We've got a tension going on. And then there's an obvious problem that we want to see. King David was not led by the covenant in his heart. Wasn't his heart leading him at all, was it? Perhaps it was something else. What are we going to say about this um, orphan concept? Because... As I was praying this week, I really heard the Lord say to me, I want you to go after this concept of, of orphan. And I spent some time preparing for that, like just so you know, I wouldn't turn up with an idea. Because um, sometimes in the past, I've been guilty of, and, and some of the stuff that I'm reading would refer to what's often common in a charismatic Pentecostal church as something called the orphan spirit. But if you look in Scripture, you won't find it because it's not there. So I had to make sure that I was checking. One, was I hearing what God was saying? Because he said to go after this orphan concept, and and I thought he said the orphan spirit. But as I studied the Scriptures, I realized orphan spirit is not in the Scripture. But neither is the Christmas spirit. But is the Christmas spirit real? So what does that mean? What does it mean when we say someone is filled with the Christmas spirit? Is it happy? It means they're looking forward to putting the tree up two months before Christmas. It means in October, the Christmas carols are already playing in someone's bedroom when they come home from overseas. It means the Christmas spirit is alive and well in our house. But is it like in biblical terms, is it a spirit? No, it's a 
It's, a, it's an environment that shapes our behavior. It's, it's the way that we look at the world. It's the way that we feel about things. I'm sure there's a spirit of rugby in South Africa right now that's full of joy. Notice all these African friends aren't here this morning. They're still partying. Pray for them. But what, what's my point? The spirit of rugby is the joy we find in the celebration or in fact, the opposite if you're English, the rugby spirit is really downcast and causing depression right now. So, so, So to speak of an orphan spirit is not to speak of an unclean spirit that's sent by the devil to distract you. It's how you choose to see the world. It's how you choose to operate. It's how you choose to put yourself in. And I want to make this point quite clearly because some of you may in fact literally be an orphan. And that's not a bad thing. That's not what I'm trying to say today. Because Moses was an orphan, Esther was an orphan, and they both were significantly powerful leaders in God's people. So the concept of literally being an orphan is not what I'm going after this morning, because an orphan is one who has no father, but watch the contrast. An orphan mindset is one who forgets they have a father. How we see the world affects how we act. If we forget who we are, we act out of context for the greater mission. Did David have a father? Yes, his name was Jesse. Did David have a promise? Yes, it was to be the ruler of Israel and to give birth eventually, not literally, to the Messiah would come through David. But did he forget that? In the moment, I believe he did. In the moment, I believe he did. So so what I'm trying to go after this morning, I think the Lord's pointing us towards is the condition of our hearts and greater context of the bigger mission. How are we connected? We have just finished the teaching series this year on um, night school, 2019, called A Journey Home. And the key passage of scripture that we looked at this year was the story of the loving father in Luke chapter 15. Some would call it the story of the prodigal son. We looked at both sons, actually. We looked at the younger brother who said to his father, give me my inheritance and I will go and make something of myself. There's a whole lot on that, but essentially dishonoured his father. Walked away, plundered it, spent it, came home with his tail between his legs, but at least he was repentant. For a moment, his actions showed us that his heart was away from his father. But let's not forget the older brother. who stayed at home, worked like a dog, but what was his heart like? He says to his father, you didn't even give me a goat so I could celebrate with my friends. Forgets he's got a father. So the orphan mindset conditions us. And what we see in Luke chapter 15 is that the orphan mindset often looks like independence. It's it's funny how these things or conditions that we bring ourselves into manifest in the opposite. So someone who feels like they're an orphan or is um, challenged in this area will often seek after independence or isolation. The very thing they need is the thing they avoid. But that's that's not uncommon. If you think about, I could give you another example. Um, Insecurity. Insecurity is not a spirit. It's a condition though. Insecurity often manifests in Control. People who are insecure try to control other people. 
So we've got this condition in our heart, back to author mindset, this mindset, the position, the condition, we've got, to, we've got to realize what it is and call it out because in the context of something bigger, we've got to understand we serve God and his plan, not ours. We've got to be like Uriah and our heart for the bigger mission, not the moment. We've got to have a, a heart that says yes to God because he is I am, not yes to ourselves because we've got plans on Sunday. We've got to bring it home. We've got to bring it close to home. Because the risk is we become an orphan-minded church. Three things that we see in an orphan-minded church, watch them on the screen. An orphan-minded church becomes disconnected from God's promises. It's like the younger son in Luke 15, completely disconnected from his family and all that it provided for him. But an orphan-minded church is also disconnected from the mission. If ineffective, unable to achieve the mission that God's given them because of the way that they see the world. Remember, our heart affects our vision, our vision affects our actions. The mindset is what changes. And finally, this is the worst one, an awful minor church is just simply unattractive to anyone. You think of someone you went to school with that had this kind of mindset, you'd really want to hang out with them? So, so again, I'm, I'm trying to pull it into context. He is, I am. It is him who defines who we are. It is us that's got to become connected to something bigger than ourselves. Let's look at Jesus. Jesus is a fantastic example. This scripture bounced into my mind. I don't know where it came from. Middle of the night this week when I couldn't sleep. I don't know what time zone I was in. But the Lord said, remember Jesus? He set his face toward Jerusalem. Now, Luke is a funny gospel because it's not chronological. So this is in chapter nine. Later on, Jesus dies. But, but here, Luke chose these words. He said, Jesus, knowing the time would come, set his face towards Jerusalem. He was determined that he would complete the Father's mission. And he knew what it meant. He knew what the price was. He knew what he would be called to do. But he set his face toward it anyway. Jesus seeks after the mission and not the moment. Also, in speaking of Jesus, Paul writes this. Philippians 2, well-known passage. Paul says, consider your attitudes that you would have the same as Christ, that your mind would be aligned with Christ, some translations say. Who in the very nature of being God did not consider himself God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But Jesus made himself nothing. I was telling the prayer meeting before the service, Pastor Andrew uh, preached a message in Indonesia, the God who kills you. It was a good message. Because God calls us into a place where we'd be willing to die for the mission, like Uriah. See, my prayer in going through this and my hope and my, my dream is that we would not stay an orphan minded church or even become one, but that we would become a healthy church that we would be connected to God's promises, that we would be effective in our mission and that we'd be attractive to other people. How does that happen? When each one of us takes care of our heart as individuals, knowing that we're individually part of something bigger, that's a collective. I'm not speaking about individual identity today, I'm speaking about corporate identity, but each one of us have a part to play in that. We're part of a body. And the foot needs the hand as much as the ear needs the eye. 
And the nose, well, you're just going to look silly without a nose. It's all important. We've got to put it in context of who we are. So what does this look like for us? What does it mean for our church? What does it look like for us? Well, I love saying welcome to Zion because the name Zion, to me, prophesies who God's called us to be. We are God's people, and look at this, God's presence, tabernacles with his people. That's what Zion represents. That's, you know, we taught on this at the beginning of this year, that, the, that Mount Zion was the place where David, um, essentially I'll speak next week, but David built this tabernacle for God to dwell amongst his people forever. Now Jesus established the new covenant, but my point is that the name Zion prophesies God will dwell with his people. God dwells with us. God lives with us. This is part of our identity. We have this um, value statement. We're a family who gather together in God's presence, live together in his love and share in his truth. This is, these represent our four values, family, presence, love, and truth. Let's just look at one of them. Well, I'll look at one of them. You're not going to because it's on here. Presence. Presence. One of the um, articles I was reading when I was traveling, just searching for something in my research, and this amazing passage of a book where this, the writer was saying, you know, we shouldn't search after God's presence because it's in us. We should learn to live from a place of connection in his presence. Because if you come into a prayer meeting going, man, I hope God shows up. Or you might, well, God didn't show up today because the music was bad. No, 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 you got it totally wrong. God was here. God is in us. We pray from that place. We worship from that place. We serve and live from that place of being connected with God's presence. You're his children. His DNA is in you. The spark that created you as an embryo was him. We've got to live from a place of presence. What does it mean? It means, means understand that when we get together, it's almost like it becomes more, like a flame gets bigger because we're together corporately. Can you have God's presence at home? Yeah, all the time. Man, the worship parties I have in my car, awesome. Sorry you're not there. God's presence is in me. I'm worshiping from a place of presence. But when I'm with you, the flame's bigger. Why? Because we add up. Presence. What about family? Family is, in my, in my opinion, that's our number one value. It's the first thing God said to me when I came here, go after this. And every time I try and shift my focus, God's like, mm, nah, not yet. Because it's so important to him. God models family through the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, other-centered love, always seeking to serve the higher good of someone else. That's family. And an orphan mindset would seek to find isolation or independence away from family. Well, we're not designed to live independent. We're not designed to live away from family. Local context, local culture, the Māori, they've got this whakawhanangatanga. It's, it's the bigger picture of who I am and where I come from, which defines who I am. And in whānau, the essence of me exists, but it's part of something bigger. Family. These are, these are just two of our values, and, and, and I haven't got time to unpack them, but they've got to shape the way we see the world. We've got to get them in here as a belief. We've got to say, you know what? Family is more important than a moment. Family is more important than an event that happens to be on a Sunday. Why? Because when you're not here, I miss out. 
or that other people miss out. Here's your assignment for the week. Look around and remember who's not here and invite them to church next Sunday. Why? Because without them, you're not as good as you could be. Well, I know I'm not. I'll speak for myself. I'm not as good as I could be because we're designed to be together, family. And it's not just for the moment, it's for the mission, right? There's stuff going on in the life of this church that I literally cannot find the answer to, but I know that it's here somewhere. I've just got to discover the gold. If I could get the band to come and join me. I want to finish with song two. Uh, I'm saying that to the band so they know which one to start playing. Um, Contrasting David and Uriah. When David was unsuccessful, when he had nothing but a sling in his pocket and a sheep to talk to, you know, his prayers, his songs, his lifestyle and his passion for Israel, unquestionable. But it wasn't until he had comfort, it wasn't until he had pleasure, it wasn't until anyone would do anything he asked because he was the king of Israel that his heart got turned. And this morning I'm making the contrast between the church I was in last week and the church I'm in this week, saying we're way too comfortable, I think. And I speak to myself here, like I live in a nice house. You know, I roast my coffee beans on my roaster and I enjoy a really good coffee on a really nice coffee machine, which doesn't happen overseas, I can promise you that. I have food in the cupboard. It always just seems to replace itself. I don't know how that happens, but it's awesome. I I can promise you that on Christmas Day, there's going to be lots and lots and lots of boxes under my Christmas tree. Why? Because we're comfortable. Don't want for much. Have anything I want, really. The contrast against those that have not much And what I see is really difference in how they worship, how they give themselves to something. But we're not supposed to think we're poor. I don't come home going, man, I wish I had no food. I don't come home going, oh, I wish I I I might sell my truck and get a bike, like a push bike, or an old moped that only goes every now and then. I do not think that at all. And that's because of the Scripture The context of Luke 15, and again, we've just finished this with night school, so it's fresh in my mind, but we finished on this because I'm not trying to get us to be a church that thinks that we're impoverished. I'm not trying to get us to eat rice three times a day. God, help me if that ever happens because I do that enough when I'm away. What's my point? Whether you're in the church in Indonesia, the church in India, the church in South Africa, the church in in the US or the church in New Zealand, we have the same father. And what does the father say at the end of Luke 15? Jesus tells the parable, speaking to the older brother. He says, son, you're always with me. And everything that I have is yours. But we've got to learn to live in the place of humility while we have everything. It's not about what you have that defines your heart. But it is your heart that defines your position before the father. So I'm going to ask the band to lead us in this song. I think the words are perfect as a prayer. And as, as um, Jamie was leading us um, this morning, 
Remember he said this at the end of the song? He said, what is it you're holding on to? Remember that? We'll just stand. Join me and we'll stand. Well, I was listening to him say that and I was like, Lord, what am I holding on to? And the Lord quite quickly said to me, well, it's easy, son. You're holding on to your view of what your church should look like. Like who's here, what they look like, what they sound like, what our balance sheet looks like, what our track record looks like, what our effectiveness and missions look like. He says, son, you're holding on to that. Now let it go. This is not my church. This is his church. And he will build his church. He will build us as his church. So I invite you to bring yourself before him this morning, to open your heart before him, to sing the song as a prayer, ultimately holding on to nothing, giving him everything and allowing him to do what he wants to do in our lives individually and together.